In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen. Please be comfortable. (laughs) To the extent we can, masked up, although we're getting used to it, are we not? It is a blessing to be able to keep our neighbor safe, whether stranger or beloved. My name is John Taylor. I am your bishop diocesan. And being at St. Cross is a peerless joy. I bring, first of all, greetings from my colleagues, Bishop Diane Jardine Bruce, who also loves this church so well. And we love her well. And so we give thanks that the Holy Spirit has seen fit to invite her to come to Kansas City, where she will be Bishop Provisional in the Diocese of West Missouri. We give thanks for the work of the Spirit, and yet we mourn not only the departure of beloved colleague, although she'll be back in our diocese within two or three years, she promises, but we also lament all that she does that she will not be able to do for the people of God here because she is serving elsewhere. So we're anxious. We're a little bit worried. Because it's hard to imagine the Diocese of Los Angeles without Bishop Diane, and yet the Holy Spirit will provide. We know this. We preach this. And it's when anxiety comes close at hand are we really invited to live into the gospel promise. Also sending you good wishes is Canon of the Ordinary Melissa McCarthy, Chief of Staff of St. Paul's Commons in Echo Park, your diocesan headquarters, which is beginning to come back to life with an official reopening the middle of next week. So we pray for you daily. We invite your prayers for us, for we are a diocesan family. But if I may, standing again in this pulpit is for me, and excuse me for waxing personal, a particular pleasure because I've done it many times. Not so much as your bishop or even a visiting deacon or priest, but as the corny narrator of the Messiah (laughs) sing-along. And sitting here in the choir loft with the magnificent the magnificent St. Cross Choir has got me thinking about the afternoon of the first Sunday of Advent. And, and I'm, I'm asking around subtly. I'm, I'm being, I'm, I, because I know, I know for those in charge of a church this complex with so many people that, that Reverend Rachel and others are worried about, we need to make careful decisions about what to go forward with. But I'm hearing glimmers of possibility that Messiah might be on. Whether or not you call me or some other celebrated, <laughs> some other celebrated cornball, this is, this is not the issue. But I do hope that it'll be possible at some point before Jesus comes back for, <laughs> for that wonderful St. Cross tradition to be reignited. It's also a joy to be with Reverend Rachel. She is, 
She is a beloved priest around our diocese and in our country. She is a celebrated innovator who finds a way to combine the best of our traditions with a 21st century mentality about how to be the church that this time needs, that sort of combination of ancient and modern, which is so effective in the Episcopal Church for those who are able to do it as well as Rachel is. She's famous for her gifts in mentoring able, brilliant, recently ordained clergy, such as Reverend Josh, and she also knows a good deal about institution building and fundraising. So I rely on Rachel a great deal, and I'd like to ask you to give her a big hand on this St. Cross Day. God bless you. And with some sadness, particularly for Rachel, I want to note her friendship. It's a close friendship. They are said to be besties with Bishop-elect Paula Clark of Chicago. Bishop-elect Clark is continuing to recover from a cerebral, cerebral bleed in April that has delayed but ultimately not prevented her consecration. Bishop Curry himself recovered from a similar brain event early in his time as our presiding bishop. And you know how well he recovered in order to take his place as the most important voice in 21st century Christianity. And so too will, so too will Bishop-elect Clark recover. And in doing so, she will be an even wiser and abler leader by virtue of her suffering. And this, in a way, is our theme this morning, my fellow pilgrims. Holy Cross Day invites, explicitly invites, our veneration of the hard wood means of our Lord's suffering. And this is tender, careful terrain for us. We have to, first of all, be careful not to invite, even fetishize, suffering, which the church sometimes has done. It's important never to acquiesce in any suffering that can be prevented by worldly human means. It means that we never excuse any agency, any institution, any person causing suffering. This is just to say that suffering is inevitable, that life is the way of the cross, and that out of our experiences, both joyful and sorrowful, we fashion the very means of our ministry and healing, the very means of our abundant gospel living. By our suffering, if we process it with the, with the tools that we have, we become wiser, we become more empathetic, we become more loving. And by grace, we are more inclined to give up of ourselves for the sake of others. In Philippians this morning, Paul construes the cross as the very means of Christ's majesty. Since bearing our crosses, we experience the nature of Christ, even take on our shoulders some of the apostolic authority of Christ. It's natural for us to be drawn to the power of the cross. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise hands because this is not fifth grade. 
but I imagine a number of you have made your pilgrimage to Jerusalem. I know Reverend Rachel has to go and be in the land of the Holy One, to be in the region of Israel and Palestine where there is so much suffering as well as so much remembrance of our Lord's suffering. I've had the blessing of seven trips to Jerusalem. And one year, I set off with a local Diocese of L.A. angle because I had a referral from a longtime friend. Remember, church is a complex network of relationship. I had the name of a Franciscan Roman Catholic priest by the name of Fergus Clark, who used to serve at St. Joseph's in good old Placentia in North Orange County, right next door to Yorba Linda, where my spouse Kathy and I used to live. We were told, as Kathy and I set off for the Holy Land, that in the ineffably holy and mysterious Church of the Holy Sepulchre, known to be the site of our Lord's crucifixion as well as his resurrection, the holiest site in Christendom. We were told that if you, if you make your way through the clouds of incense along the cobblestone floors to the chapel of Mary Magdalene near the chapel of the Blessed Sacrament and knock three times on the sacristy door, it'll open. And there you will find Fergus. And so we did. The Franciscans, of whom Fergus Clark is one, help care for the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. And they are the only custodians of the church who actually spend the night there, who live on site. And on one trip, Fergus took us, this is going to sound exciting at first, to the monk's kitchen. How about that? There was an old Sears and Roebuck refrigerator, linoleum floors, this beat-up old dining table in the kitchen. Wasn't a lot to look at, except, Fergus said, with a twinkle in his eye, that it's thought that in the fourth century after Christ, this was Queen Helena's residence in the church that Helena had built on this site. And why did she build a church there? You denizens of St. Cross and Holy Cross Day know this story well. You know that Helena built the church where she says that she and her associates found pieces of the true cross. Now this is where the thoroughly modern 21st century Christian becomes a little bit skeptical <laughs> about claims regarding pieces of the cross found centuries later, claims about saints' relics which are venerated in the church. We, we are, we're, we're modern people. We don't buy all this mythology necessarily. But let's remember what our theme is here. This is 
powerful, important stuff to us as we walk the way of the cross. Let's remember the power of the cross to connect us with the saving, liberating power of Christ itself. So please excuse the pilgrim's zeal to try to reach out and touch the cross. And Kathy and I came close ourselves. Again, thanks to good old Fergus from Placentia, California. After the sack of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, the Romans destroyed all evidence of non-Roman religion on what's now called the Temple Mount and in the old city of Jerusalem. No sign of Jewish practice, no sign of nascent Christian practice. It was stripped clean. But people remembered, people who had been there at the time remembered what had happened, even if they hadn't read any of the texts that were being composed. They remembered because there had been mighty events when the teacher had come and taught and healed and promised salvation and been persecuted and died and it was said and passed from generation to generation that he had been raised. People had heard these stories and they remembered them. Who were the people? the original Palestinian Christians. Those whom we encounter now in the Holy Land as Arab Palestinian Christians. These who remembered were the forebears of that dwindling cohort of Palestinian Arab Christians in the Holy Land who were so important to the continuity of our narrative. And Fergus told us this, that in those long years between the work of Helena and the savage work of the Romans tearing away any sign of Christian practice. These people remembered, Fergus said, and he told us as we stood in a balcony in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre that it was well known that they had tunneled their way toward where they knew Christ's moment of suffering had occurred. And they had found the rock of Golgotha back then. And we know it exists because the Church of the Holy Sepulchre is built on the rock of Golgotha. You can see it now. But Fergus told us that centuries ago people tunneled in and they found pieces of the rock and they brought it back. And then Fergus told Kathy and me that we should go to a place called the Custody of the Holy Land. It's basically the Franciscans' headquarters in old Jerusalem. These monks and priests and lay people who help look after these holy sites. Fergus said if we went to the Custody of the Holy Land and asked for a certain priest and mentioned Fergus's name, Fergus from Placentia, <laughs> that that priest would hand us a piece, a tiny little piece of the rock of Golgotha that those tunnel digging followers of the way had chipped off 2,000 years before. Can you imagine how quickly we made our way to the custody of the Holy Land and we got there? It was on the Thursday before we were going to fly out Friday morning, and there was a note on the door, and it said, so sorry, father is sick. A handwritten note. Kind of an anticlimax 
Because maybe you thought I was going to pull out of my pocket a piece of the rock of Golgotha. But see how close it felt that we had come to having our own piece of the rock where Queen Helena found, or so she says, the pieces of the true cross, your precious, your precious holy cross. And now, for all history in this great church going forward from this time, there is a sacred and a sad correlation between the 14th of September, Holy Cross Day, and the 11th of September. And the correlation is especially powerful this 20th anniversary year. The first time I saw the horrifying video of Flight 173 hitting the South Tower at 9.03 a.m. that terrible morning, the image that was imprinted in my mind as a consequence of the plane's horizontal wings striking the vertical axis of that building, I saw the sign of the cross. Right or wrong, that's the first thing I thought of. And I think it's because my understanding of our faith is that God floods in to every horrifying moment. Every dire diagnosis from a physician, every accident on the highways, every human-made sin, every nature-made disaster. God intends none of it. God particularly does not intend that which we do to God's people. But God does take every moment and instantly envelop it and sanctify it and begin to heal it. So when we see the cross, whether it was my imagination of a cruciform made by a plane already on fire, whether we see the cross in our stories of our Lord's suffering, when we see the cross in our private devotions or when we see it in church, when we're reminded of what the cross stands for, we always say, why, O oh Lord, why? It's the first question when there is agony. When it comes to the 11th of September, there's a whole range of answers that lie chiefly in the realm of politics and foreign policy. It is not the stuff of Holy Cross Day at St. Cross Church on Sunday morning. Suffice it to say that when I be behold the way leaders often behave in our country and around the world, I sometimes yearn for the completion of Jesus' prophecy, which we heard this morning in John's Gospel, that the rulers of this world will be driven out if only because they so often perform so poorly. I sometimes hear my soul saying, come as soon as you can, Jesus, and bring the beloved community with you because we are waiting and sometimes we cannot stand to endure the suffering and to see the suffering anymore. 
Yes, September 11th has many lessons for us, and probably among the most important, it was an invitation to deeper mutual understanding, more attentive listening to one another, to more intentional loving of one another, particularly when it's done across barriers of difference, many of which we construct. Race, orientation, identity, socioeconomics, which is one we sometimes don't focus on enough. The gospel imperative of understanding the way wealth and poverty function in an environment of privilege such that many of us enjoy. Sometimes the barrier of geography can be so powerful, and especially in the context of the 11th of September, religion and faith. The night before last at Kathy's in my house in Pasadena, which is also your Episcopal residence, we had a little program to mark the 20th anniversary of September 11th, and I invited our Episcopal, also from Orange County, he worships at Church of the Messiah in Santa Ana, Dr. Jack Miles, who is a Pulitzer Prize winning author of God, a biography, the general editor of the Norton Anthology of World Religions. But I asked her to come and talk to a uh, tiny little sort of COVID appropriate audience outside about his most recent book, which is called God in the Koran. And Monday or Tuesday, we're going to send a news release out about the event that will contain a link to the complete program where there are other distinguished speakers as well. So watch for that. And I know Reverend Rachel will make sure that you get it. Now, I know from Reverend Rachel that St. Cross, as you first of all emerge from this time of wilderness in which you've discovered such a capacity for innovation and flexibility. You've continued while making the sacrifices of your usual church practices. You've continued to glorify God and care for God's people and be the exuberant service-driven community that the diocese knows St. Cross is. In addition to giving thanks for that, I know you're also going to be asking yourself some basic questions about what's next. I know you'll be listening for the whispers of the Holy Spirit as you plan together the next season of mission and ministry at this magnificent church. And we're all asking ourselves these questions as we come back from the wilderness. What does Jesus need us to be at this stage in the pandemic? What does Jesus need us to be after September 11th? And I've been asking myself over and over again what Jesus needs our church to be in the wake of the events at the Capitol on the Feast of the Epiphany, January 6th. At the diocese, part of our answer is kind of prosaic. We're doing all we can to put all of our institutions, and especially your diocese, on a stronger financial and organizational foundation through the capital campaign and through other means. But as for a mission statement for all of us in these polarized times, these times which are both secularizing, we see that happening in our culture and our politics, but there are also times which, at least as far as I'm concerned, are spiritually famished. People are hungry for something larger than life to focus their attention and energy on. I'm thinking of these words as a possible mission statement for all of us. 
from Jack Miles two nights ago. It's a, really a humble roadmap for the way of the cross. And as I read this out, I want to acknowledge that I understand that in these times of division, even within families over culture and politics, that what Jack suggests is easier to say than to do. Jack told us on Friday, if we can cultivate in our Episcopal church habits of openness, trust, mutual support to be sure, but also sympathetic participation in the lives and faith commitments of others, then our country will be just that little bit better defended culturally against descending irreversibly into an abyss of suspicion, hatred, and crippling division, which is a tall order. So I'm going to finish by showing how that happened in just one family. My wife Kathy and I lived and worked for many years on the East Coast, and we became friends with a couple called Harry Wazer and Karen Walsh. Harry was Jewish. Karen is Catholic. And when they got married, their families were appalled. And Harry and Karen's parents never even met for many years. And I imagine this kind of a story unlocks in you memories of how things which are human and things which are important nevertheless cause tragic divisions among people who really ought just to love one another because again, this work is hard to do because these values become important to us and, and we want to insist that, that, that we're standing for something really, really important even though it's keeping us from a relationship with someone, we stand for the value. And then September 11th came in this family. Harry worked for Cantor Fitzgerald in the World Trade Center and he was standing at an elevator and the door opened and he was doused with jet fuel, horribly burned. And for many weeks he was kept in a coma as his burns began to heal. And Karen would work long hours as an attorney in Westchester County. And she would come and visit Harry at night as soon as she could after work and after she'd had a bite of, a bite of dinner. And remember, their parents until then had been completely alienated, and Harry's parents as well. And Karen tells the story, this was probably late September, early October 2001, of coming to the hospital late one night. And as Karen tells the story, the, the hallway where Harry was then still in a coma was darkened and quiet. And she looked down the hall and she turned toward Harry's room. She saw two figures walking hand in hand. It was her mother and Harry's mother. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.